Turn with me to Psalm 73. As you do, let's see if we might be able to kick this morning off with a little audience interaction. Um, God is good. All the time. All right, cool. I had, I had a little panic moment before. I was like, is that a thing everywhere, or is that just a thing in the church growing up? Um, absolutely, God is good. In, indeed, the confession that God is good is really one of the most simple and most foundational for the Christian faith, right? Like, no Christians deny that God is good. Um, and yet, while confessing that God is good, with our mouths and, and with our doctrine, which is vitally important. If we're honest, there are times when our hearts and our hands don't make the same confession. Said differently, all of us have had, are having, or will have again those moments in our lives where it is difficult for our hearts and our actions to rejoice in the goodness of God. If you are paying attention to your motivations and desires, then it is safe to say that all of us have had, are having, or will have again times in our life wherein we seek ultimate satisfaction in life outside of God and thereby say with our actions, God, you aren't enough. You aren't sufficient. I'm going to chase my satisfaction elsewhere. And so, like Israel in the book of Jeremiah, there are times when we become like a wild donkey in her heat, sniffing the wind, and ready to run after any number of other things that promise to satisfy. And that reality is what we see in our text this morning. I, I love this text this morning. In our text, we will find what might strike you as a surprisingly honest confession. Surprising because we might not expect to hear such a raw, honest confession in the scriptures. But as Irish scholar Alec Mater said of the Psalms, the book of Psalms is notable for facing not hiding from life. And yet, while surprisingly honest, I expect that it would require a significant amount of superficiality and lack of self-awareness on our part this morning in order to read this text and not identify in some measure with even the most wicked confession of Asaph. Said differently, if we can be honest, we will recognize that we too have been so brutish and ignorant to doubt the goodness of God. We too have been guilty of looking enviously upon the unbelieving world, and we too have faced and will face again times in our lives wherein we need to be awakened from our foolishness to see again with fresh eyes that but for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. So let us pray this morning that God will grant us the humility to search our own hearts. 
And let us pray that we too can be reminded of the goodness of God in a way that goes past simply doctrinal confession and sets our hearts ablaze with deep-rooted, God-centered joy that causes us to glory in him in whatever worldly circumstances we find ourselves in. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word. God, I thank you for the wonderful grace it is that the Psalms don't hide from life and they give us uh, examples, Lord, that we see in ourselves and that we can resonate with. God, I thank you for the grace of your word and that by it you steer us towards life in you that you convict us through your word, you comfort us through your word, you reveal yourself to us in your word and remind us of who you are. God, I confess that I'm entirely inadequate to convey this truth fully this morning, God, and and dependent on your spirit to do your work through your word. As we read your word and as we go out from here today thinking about your word, and as we gather in base groups later tonight thinking about your word, Lord, I pray that you would convict us where we need to be convicted, that you would comfort us where we need to be comforted, that you would stir up in us uh, the places where we are like Asaph, that you would search our hearts and show us where we must confess that we've been brutish and ignorant. But God, I also pray that you would stir up in us the same wonderful, joyous confession that Asaph arrives at in the end, Lord, that you would stir up in us a just deep, resounding bedrock of your joy, of your goodness. So God, I pray that you would do that work in us this morning. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. If you do much hiking, you will know that it's not necessarily the mileage of a hiking trail that will get you, but it's the elevation changes. Six miles at a fairly flat elevation may be a nice, peaceful stroll through the woods, but four miles of sharp decline and steep ascent may leave you questioning your choice of recreational activity. Indeed, I recall some hiking outings wherein one member of the Wrecker household and separately one member of the Holloway household almost met their match out there in the rise and the fall of the woods. But in the end, both prevailed and were rewarded with a wondrous view Our text today has a similar elevation chart. As the writer Asaph starts high on the mountaintop with a summary statement, then quickly descends into dark valleys as he recounts a crisis of doubt and unbelief before finally ascending again to the mountaintops of God-exalting praise, where he comes to his senses, landing safely in a right and proper view of the goodness of God. And as we read all of Psalm 73 together, I think it may be helpful to give you some signposts to look for as you read. 
My outline this morning comes directly from Alec Matir's uh, commentary in the New Bible Commentary. And in this, uh, Matir observes in our text a simple uh, chiastic structure that will serve as our outline. That is, a simple symmetry in the structure of the text where there's a descent to the valley towards the climactic moment where Asaph comes to his senses, followed by a parallel ascent out of the valley, and back to right thinking and right affections for God. It looks like that. Uh, Truth stated, God is good. Verse 2 to 14, poor me, new perspectives, and then the parallel on the other side, rich me, truth affirmed, yes, it is good. And so with those divisions as signposts in our mind, let's read all of Psalm 73 together. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. And therefore, his people turn back to them and and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish You put an end to everyone who was unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. So, Asaph begins this psalm this morning with his conclusion. Like a movie that gives away the ending in the opening, we are not left to wonder where Asaph lands. 
He tells us in the summary of verse 1, and his conclusion shows us what truth about the Lord had come under attack in his heart. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Then Asaph moves on to his confession, and our text begins to descend down into the dark valley of confession. Poor me. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Verse 4 through 11 detail the specifics of the complaint. If we were to skip down to verse 12 and 13, we find the complaint summarized. Asaph's complaint summarized. Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. Asaph looks around. He sees wicked men seeming to flourish, unfaithful men seeming to be living the good life. Verse 4, they're well fed. Okay? It says their bodies are fat and sleek. That's a compliment. They're well fed. They're doing well. In verse 5, they have no trouble at all. Going on, their lifestyle feeds their pride, and they scoff, oppress, and even speak blasphemy. And then Asaph says, it's all in vain that I have pursued God faithfully. The wicked live in ease while I have kept my heart clean and I am stricken. In other words, why does it seem like those men living with no regard for God get to live a life of seeming ease? Why do they escape suffering? And ultimately his question is this, is faithfully pursuing God worth it? Is the grass greener on that side? Or is it all in vain? Asaph's question is, where's my blessing? Church family, I think we need to linger here this morning. While we might be tempted, and believe me, I am, to rush through this portion to get to the wondrous joy at the end of the chapter, the fact is, if we don't linger long here this morning, linger long here in our base groups, and also linger here privately, wrestling with this text on our own, then we can't truly arrive in the wondrous joy at the end of this chapter. Charles Spurgeon says here of this text, it is a pitiful thing that an heir of heaven should have to confess I was envious. But worse still, that he should have to put it, I was envious at the foolish. Yet this acknowledgement is, we fear, due from most of us. Church family, how are you like Asaph? While you certainly know in your mind and confess with your mouth that God is good, in what way does your heart envy? What times in your life has your heart cried out, all in vain have I kept my heart clean? 
In what ways do you take stock of all the undeserved blessings God has sovereignly bestowed upon you and then turn like a petulant child looking at someone else's toys and say, yeah, but I want that. We must linger here recognizing ourselves in Asaph. We must not rush too quickly through this section that we fail to see our own fleshly weaknesses in Asaph's fleshly weaknesses. But more, we must not rush so quickly through this section that we fail to rightly acknowledge the utter wickedness of Asaph's crisis. While his honesty, his transparency, his self-awareness is wonderfully commendable Honestly and transparently speaking, the wickedness of his heart doesn't make it any less wicked. You might say, whoa, man, really? Utter wickedness? Now you're just piling on, and why pile on someone who is obviously struggling? Because a shallow confession leads to shallow repentance. A shallow diagnosis leads to a shallow prognosis. A shallow dredging up of our heart leaves root issues behind festering under the surface. And so if we are going to rise with Asaph in triumphant repentance on the back end of this passage, our confession must match the depth of his confession. Asaph says himself, of himself, his soul was embittered. In verse 21, he will say himself, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. In verse 22. Look again on your own to verses 3 through 13. Is not Asaph's wrestling truly wicked? Jesus will come later in history and he'll ask, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Here, Asaph asks the opposite question. What does it profit a man to lose the whole world and yet walk in the presence of God? Asaph pulls no punches in his own self-examination. Asaph is here suffering anguish as a direct result as a direct result of his own unbelief and wandering heart, what Asaph needs to be healed and restored is to deal with his sin in confession and repentance. Church, suppose Asaph here, in his anguish and his suffering, were a brother in your base group. Suppose Asaph was your husband. Suppose he was your son. Or you yourself. How do you help him? Would you graciously deal with sin as sin? Or would you seek to merely alleviate the consequences while overlooking the cause? 
we are loving, we must be willing to travel the uncomfortable road of confronting sin and idolatry in order that we might see the brother restored to joy again. That's the most loving thing for Asaph. That's the most loving thing for me when my own heart has caused me anguish. Asaph cries out, poor me, when he's in fact not poor at all. Asaph, quit your whining, grumbling, complaining, and pining after the things of this world and recognize that you are in fact rich because you have a treasure that no one can put a price on. Now, um, before we move on, I want to offer an important caveat that I think is necessary this morning. I know the very real hardships and sufferings that some of you are facing in life. Some of you are experiencing unimaginable difficulties, and for your sake, I want to be clear that it is not wrong for you to lament your situation before God, provided you don't, as Asaph does here, become embittered and brutish before God. Jeremiah Burroughs says, Christian contentment is not opposed to making, in an orderly manner, our moan and complaints to God and to our friends. Though a Christian ought to be quiet under God's correcting hand, he may, without any breach of Christian contentment, complain to God. Though not with a tumultuous clamor and shrieking out in a confused passion, Yet in a quiet, still, submissive way, he may unbosom his heart to God. Likewise, he may communicate his sad condition to his Christian friends, showing them how God has dealt with him and how heavy the affliction is upon him, that they may speak a word in season to his weary soul. If you are here and you are experiencing trials, Lamenting the difficulty of these trials is not unfaithful, provided you don't become bitter towards God, as Asaph does here. Asaph's lament here in Psalm 73 is not the honest struggle of suffering. Rather, it is the self-inflicted darkness from envy and ignorance. And as we move on from the poor me section this morning... Hope that you will return to linger here on this soul-searching as you leave out from here today and as you discuss this text in your base groups tonight. Because you can't use a microwave to cook good barbecue. It must be done low and slow and requires patience. In the same way, you can't rush confession. It must be done slowly and patiently. Having reached the bottom of the valley, our text turns in this next section as Asaph comes to his senses in verse 15. He says, If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Asaph says, if I had vocalized, if I would given voice to these wicked thoughts, it would have been a betrayal of the covenant people of God. 
Again, it's a good thing to be honest, but Asaph says here, I'm glad I didn't say these things out loud. Grumbling openly like that would have been a betrayal, causing a brother or sister to stumble. Verse 16, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. One thing we can observe here is that even in the midst of his crisis, even in the midst of his doubt, Asaph carries on with all of his duties as a choir leader. He does not, in his wrestling, in his darkness, he does not fall into the error of neglecting the regular means of grace, but rather he comes to his senses by continuing to plod along doing the things that he knows he ought to do, even when maybe his heart is wondering. He does what he knows he should do, even when he doesn't feel like doing it. And there's a good bit to learn there, And I'll just repeat, Asaph comes to his senses by continuing to plod along, doing the things he knows he ought to do, continuing to participate in corporate worship and the regular means of grace. And there he discerns rightly that it is foolish to envy those who are far from God. Whatever ease the unbeliever may appear to experience in this life, their situation is not one to be envied, for in the end, God will answer scoffing and blasphemy with divine judgment. And if you're here today and you're a non-believer, this may sound odd to you. As if this is some kind of gloating over your plight. But rest assured this morning, not a one of us here wants to see you on the wrong end of judgment. As we carry on to talk about the grace and the riches of God in the next section, our prayer is that you would be stirred up in your heart to repent of your unbelief and trust in Jesus. Rich me, verse 21 through 26. Church, hear the grace of this section. Though we be faithless like Asaph, God remains faithful. Though we question his goodness, nevertheless, he remains steadfast in guiding us. Though our flesh and our hearts may fail, God still remains the strength of our heart and our portion. Verse 21. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Here, Asaph finds a resounding answer to his question. Is faithfully, God, faithfully pursuing God worth it? Yes. Is the grass greener on that side? No. Is it all in vain? No. 
Where's my blessing? God is your blessing. Earlier, Asaph's struggle was envying those who seemed to have more than him. But when he wakes up, he wakes up strong. What is Asaph's reward? God himself is Asaph's reward. Asaph has the presence of God in verse 23. He has ongoing counsel from God in verse 24. He has the promise of a bright future. He has the satisfaction of getting his greatest desire met in verse 26. Listen again to the claim of verse 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. What a claim. Like, does he really mean nothing else on earth that he desires? I mean, this is Psalms, this is poetry. Surely this is just poetic language, and perhaps in his exuberance he is overstating his case a little. It's poetic language. But even after you get to the meaning behind the poetic language, the sharpness of his point still stands. When I have a right view of God, when I have come to my senses, then my desire for him must be so far above my desire for anything else that nothing else is worth comparing. This is the consistent testimony of the scriptures. This is the consistent claim that the scriptures make about the value of a relationship with God. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. Philippians 3. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. One of my favorites. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, Jesus tells the same story twice. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Okay, that's not hedging your bets. Okay, that's all in pushing all of your chips to the center of the table. That's all in. Further, Remember, Jesus even put it so sharply as to say, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. John Piper writes on this point, and God is the gospel. Jesus must be the supreme treasure of our lives if we are true disciples of Jesus. Jesus died for us and rose again to make it possible for us to see him and savor him above all things with everlasting joy. This is the great good the gospel is meant to accomplish. It's not just 
forgiveness. It's forgiveness that gives you opportunity for relationship with God. And this is what we see in Psalm 73 in verse 26. He says, My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Okay, so the word here used for portion is the same word used in Joshua as the land gets divided up to all the Israelites. He says this tribe gets this portion, this tribe gets that portion. It's the same word used in Genesis to speak of an inheritance and say this is your portion. Where before Asaph is left wondering, all in vain have I kept my heart clean. What do I get? What is my portion? What is my cut in this? Here Asaph has found the answer in saying, no, faithfulness to God does not guarantee a life free of suffering. No, I am not promised a life of ease. Yes, my heart and my flesh may fail, but my share, my portion, my inheritance, my cut in this is way better than any of that. I get God himself. God is my portion. And let me be very clear on this point this morning. I fear what some of you heard me say is, isn't it great that if life falls apart, we can always fall back and content ourselves with God? That's not what I said. This is crucial. Even while most of us here this morning actually do experience a good deal of ease, and most of us here do experience a good amount of prosperity in this world, even in all of these blessings, there remains no treasure or competing pleasure in this world that compares to the goodness of God. It's not when your life falls apart. It's all of the time. I'm not talking about a fallback option. This isn't a safety parachute when pursuing the things of this world lets you down. For the Christian, savoring your relationship with God that was bought for you by the shed blood of Jesus must be your supreme treasure always. Indeed, it can be difficult when some of these other things get in the way, but chasing ultimate satisfaction in anything else is a fool's errand. Listen to the wise words of 25-year-old, 25-year-old David Brainerd writing to his younger brother, Israel, who was 18 at the time. Okay, so my boys are seven years apart, and oh, how I pray my oldest may be so enthralled with Jesus to give this kind of counsel to his younger brother someday. Never expect any satisfaction or happiness from the world. If you hope for happiness in the world, hope for it from God and not from the world. Do not think you shall be more happy if you live to such or such a state of life. If you live to be for yourself, to be settled in the world, or if you should gain an estate in it, but look upon it that you shall then be happy when you can be constantly employed for God and not for yourself, and desire to live in this world only to do and suffer what God allots to you. That's a good big brother. Truth affirmed, yes, it is good. Asaph concludes with a summary. 
For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. Verse 27. Those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you, but for me it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. So, as we wind down this morning, I can just confess to you straight up, this text has been heart-rending for me to study for the last few weeks. Agonizing, convicting, wonderful, difficult, all at the same time. But I'm convinced of this. I'm convinced that if you are paying attention to your heart, your response to this text is an excellent pulse check of where your affections lie this morning. Not your response to the sermon. You can take or leave that. Your response to the word of God, how does your heart respond to this glorious passage? Does it respond with apathy? Is it cynicism? Like, I like what was behind door number one better. Is it confusion? Like, I don't even know what you're talking about. Is it a subdued kind of joy, like, I know I should like this, but that's not where I'm at right now? Or is it elation? Do you hear the truth of God's nearness and goodness, and does it cause your heart to leap for joy? Are your affections stirred within you? Out of love, I say this, if your response to the text is less than elation and joy, then I would submit to you solemnly that you either have not been born again or your heart is presently in a state of spiritual sickness. Our affections should respond to this kind of truth. The Bible college I went to is uh, based out of New Orleans. I know some of you are here part, from that part of the country. Um, down in New Orleans, there's this wonderful Creole word, lanyap. Lanyap. Lanyap is this word that means like a little something extra, right? Like, like, in, like a small little gift thrown in when you, when you buy something. So... Uh, when we, my family, goes down to raise donuts, we buy half a dozen donuts, two chocolate milks, and almost every time they throw in three or four little donut holes. That's just a little something extra. I didn't pay for the donut holes. That's just a little something extra. Lanyap. Little gift. Lanyap. When you professed faith in Christ... Your sins were forgiven so that now, standing in right relationship with God, you can approach the throne of grace. You can have a relationship with the reigning king of the universe. 
whatever other blessings come to you in this life, it's just land yet. So let's go out from here and linger as we search our hearts. Let us devote ourselves anew to acknowledging and living in light of the truth that God is good. Let us go confessing, but for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Let's pray.